Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&A. I usually try to record these on Thursdays at some point, and I could release it a day early for subscribers and then public the day after on Fridays. But sometimes with scheduling, I got to record them on Friday mornings, grab a cup of coffee usually, and just kind of get started and, and see if I can get it out. So usually when this happens, it doesn't really hit the podcast services until Friday evening, at least New York time. Sometimes I can get them done a little bit before that. So I always try to stick to that strict schedule of Wednesdays for the podcast, for the weekly roundup, uh, Fridays for the Q&As, this podcast, and I'm trying to get around to the Monday other stuff. But um, So I guess if you're used to these and you, you use these to commute in the morning or something like that, uh, Fridays are always going to be iffy. Sometimes it's Friday morning, sometimes it's Friday afternoon, sometimes I try to start uploading, but my new connection from the Burbs is so freaking slow that I might upload at noon and it doesn't actually get live until 5 p.m. or something. So I just wanted to kind of give everybody an idea of what to expect. And I almost never miss these. I have in the past a few times and I felt really bad about it, but I try to stick to the good schedule. So anyway, enough rambling about scheduling. Let's jump in and see what questions we got this week. First up, over on Floatplane, the importer wanted to know the best way to connect their PlayStation Portable to their modern HDTV. So do you just connect it directly to the component video inputs? Do you run it through an analog to digital converter? Do you need a scaler? What about those Hyperkin adapters? And those are all excellent questions. And I've never done a deep dive on the PlayStation Portable. So what I'm about to say is speculation and guessing, but it's speculation and guessing based on 10 years of research and testing on other products. So it's a pretty darn good guess, but I might be wrong. So I always want to start out with that. Um, if you're on a budget or if you're just looking for a solution for today, plugging it directly into your HDTV is fine. There's no safety issues, but you're almost surely going to end up with more lag than using the HDMI inputs. Now, there's no technical reason for this. It shouldn't be like this, but I've tested 25 or so TVs that are all different brands that all have more lag when you're using the analog inputs than when using the HDMI inputs. Um, now, obviously, there's thousands of TVs out there, so yours might not do this, but I would err on the side of caution. However, you know, just for using it today, no safety issues, just give it a try. As far as an analog to digital converter, if you already have one of those, just give it a try. Um, you know, you're not going to scale the image. It's still going to be cropped on all sides. But overall, um, maybe you'll just get less lag. And if you already own one, whatever, it's still, you know, it's just still a cool free way to try it out. But if I wouldn't go out and buy one just for this reason. So that leads you to the other scaling options. Now, I've heard the Hyperkin plug-and-play works pretty decent. I've never used it, but my guess is that it still has two to four frames of variable lag, but because the PSP signal is output as progressive scan uh, in like a 480p window, you're not going to get the flicker effect of 240p being processed as 480i, I think. Once again, I've never used it. So, it might be a better looking way to play it that might end up in the same amount of lag as if you just plugged it directly into your TV. So it might not be the worst solution for PSP. Um, you know, I'd like to test it someday just for the heck of it. But, you know, if you can get one really cheap, it might be worth trying out just with the mentality of this might not be the best solution, but I want to try it. Now, if you do want a good solution, the open source scan converter should work great. If you Google uh, PSP and OSSC, you should find the Junker Headquarters wiki that explains exactly how to get this thing working, how to crop all of the uh, image right, and how to send it to your TV in a higher resolution than it outputs. I've never tried this with the RetroTINK 5X but I imagine it would be okay for that as well. I just know that the OSSC has a lot of people that have been using it since it was released pretty much. So I would kind of make your decision based on the rest of your setup. If you were planning on getting a RetroTINK 5X anyway for other stuff, just use it with your PSP and hope someday Mike adds some specific features for the PSP. If you don't have any other of these devices or if you're on a budget, the OSSC is still an amazing scaler. Just because new stuff comes out doesn't make the old stuff bad. It just, you know, new stuff has new options to it. So 
especially because you can get used OSSCs pretty cheap nowadays. So I would try looking into that if you just wanted a solution that you know would be a zero lag, decent solution that, you know, that's not going to get outdated in the fact that it's not like you're going from a laggy solution to a zero lag solution. If you picked up the OSSC, it would be a perfectly good solution today or a possibly even better solution tomorrow. So that's probably a good one to go by. So base it on what other equipment you already own um, and what you planned on buying anyway. But I, I think if you really want to do it right, get some kind of scaler. And my guesses would be OSSC or the Retro uh, Tank 5X. Over on Patreon, Gord Captain wanted to talk a little bit more about surround sound signals from classic consoles through HDMI. And I spoke to Dan, the creator of the Wii Duel, about this, as well as looked into it a little bit more. And I think my initial suspicions are probably correct in that to enable this mode, you very often would have to turn this on in the game. Not always. Some just have it encoded in there. Uh, but always look for that as an option. And then you're probably going to have to manually enable it on your receiver. Now, it's been 20-something years since these things came out, and while my memory is usually really rock-solid, um, stuff like this kind of blends together because there's always so many updates and it's always changing. But I vaguely remember having to manually select this on my receivers. So even though the signal was already in the analog outputs and, uh, you know, the, the encoded surround sound signal, if I just left my stereo on the 2.0 setting nothing would happen. I would have to manually set it to the Dolby Surround, Dolby Pro Logic 2, whatever it was. And it might still be the same way regardless of if it's HDMI or not. Now, maybe there's something that could be done in hacking to get this signal detected automatically, but that probably isn't realistic because it might even have to be a per game scenario. So I would really just do this manually anytime you could and also understand that any device that you put between it could potentially affect it now with digital signals it should be a little bit easier but i've definitely seen tvs with options to change the decoding of the hdmi when you output audio so if it's a scenario like hdmi modded console to hdmi input of the tv optical audio out of the tv into your receiver that might cause some issues that might change the sound somehow. So it sounds like the more I research it, the more it's a per setup, per scenario basis that people just need to try on their own and see the best way to do it. And luckily with stuff like the Wii Duel, you could totally take the HDMI output, put it through an HDMI switcher and put it into your TV, and then just take the analog audio outputs and put that directly into your receiver and just kind of treat it the same way you would have treated it when the console was new. So, uh, Anybody, if anybody has any other thoughts on this, I am all ears, but at the moment, I think the best answer to this is everybody's setup's going to be a little bit different, and you're probably going to have to manually enable it whenever possible. But hey, I'm wrong all the time. Uh, I never mind being wrong, so if I am wrong, let me know, but it seems like a pretty solid answer. PS3 Inquisition is having a problem with splitting an HDMI signal coming out of the RetroTank 5X. So they have a Shinybow 4x2 component matrix switcher, and one of those outputs is going into a CRT with component inputs, and that's fine, so we could just forget about this for the rest of the example. But the other output is going into a RetroTank 5X, and there are two digital displays that PS3 Inquisition wants to connect to that. And if each are connected one at a time, they work fine, but if they put a splitter in between, they're not getting signal on one of the monitors. So that's pretty rare. I have seen splitters not work properly with certain setups. There's sometimes there are EDID requirements that sometimes can't be detected. So one of the other monitors seems to be a 4x3 LCD with a DVI input not an HDMI input. So that would be my guess as to why that's not hap or that's not working. It's because whatever switch you're using is looking for some kind of EDID that tells it what's there. So uh, you also mentioned that you were using a soundbar with this as well. So what I would do with troubleshooting this is, first of all, obviously make sure to get yourself a splitter that has audio breakout so that if you wanted to, you could connect your soundbar separately and not have to worry about this. Or if you're using HDMI pass-through of your soundbar, you might want to try skipping that to see if that solves the issue. Soundbar aside, at this point, you could swap input or outputs of the HDMI splitter and see if that does anything, or just try a different splitter. 
Now, you mentioned that you used the one that I recommend, but I'm not sure which one you're referring to, because I recently did a review on two 4K splitters, and I've been using a VUHD splitter that's up to 1080p, 60, with including 3D support, and that is one that's probably going to work with everything I've tried it on. So uh, I would definitely need to clarify which splitter you're using, and try swapping the outputs. I'm assuming you already did. But I think that would be it. I think it would be the brand of Splitter. And I think the newer ones that I that I showed are probably designed for more modern displays and capture cards. But if you got the one with EDID jumper support, try messing with those. Because that's when you could do something like, or actually, if you don't own that one, maybe that's the solution. Get the one, the, the Easy Coup that has the jumpers for EDID. And then have it copy the EDID from output number one. So it just assumes that output number two is the same. And that's how you'd be able to get it displayed. So this is one of those situations where I'd need a little more info to get you an exact answer. But hopefully I would be able to point you and anybody else with a similar issue in the right direction to solve this. Lewis F96 wants to know if I think modern displays will ever be as fast as CRTs. And the answer is a bit complicated. On one hand, yes, absolutely. In fact, many of them already are. But on the other hand, no, it'll always be different. So you'll always have to work around that. So to explain a little bit from a gamer's point of view, from a pro gamer, a speedrunner, uh, from just somebody who's a huge game enthusiast, in the context of using a controller to play your games on a display, you know, that you're looking at with your eyes, not a plug into the matrix mental helmet type of thing, then many monitors and TVs are already there. They're already at a speed where as long as you're using a scaler that doesn't add much lag to it, if any lag at all, it is indistinguishable from the lag of CRTs. Now, depending on the quality of the panel, there could be the gray levels that still mess with your eyes, but that's not something that generally would affect lag or performance. That's just more of a video quality issue. So from the purpose of just or from the perspective of just holding on to a controller in gaming, I think we're almost there, if not there, and I think we're going to continue to make steps forward in the right direction. Because as new features are added, like BFI mode on the LG TVs, that adds lag, so they're going to need to find a way to lower the latency of that. But generally speaking, everybody is moving forward with a game, uh, a game mode option that reduces the latency significantly, and I think we're very close, if not already there. But there's always going to be older technologies that are synced to how a CRT works. So a CRT draws its image by a beam of light firing across the screen one line at a time that takes 16.5 milliseconds to go from the top left to the bottom right on NTSC TVs. Everybody always likes to correct me that it's different for PAL, but context of this explanation, that's how a CRT draws its image. And things like light guns work in conjunction with that and the exact refresh rate. So it's possible that you could get a zero lag flat panel that might work with light guns or it might work with the Sega 3D graph uh, glasses. But those are things that I think could possibly be accomplished or, or problems that could be solved in other ways. And I don't think that's something that display technology would really want to worry about because it is kind of a niche case. So you have the Sinden light gun, you have the gun to gun to IR. Oh man, I, I forgot what JB's invention was. I'm so sorry, but there's a bunch of different things that are coming out to solve this issue on original consoles and with emulation. And I think it would be better for the community as a whole to do what they've been doing in that, yes, TV companies and monitor display panel companies need to work on getting those as fast as possible. But we as the retro gaming community need to focus on these little niche cases like light guns. And I don't know how many 3D games are out there that are, are really, really worth playing on a modern display. I know Maze Hunter, I think, looked awesome on a flat panel TV. But that's one of those things that maybe that could be addressed on a per game basis and kind of see what happens. So yeah, once again, the short answer to your question is a lot of them already are as fast as CRTs from a gamer's perspective, but there might not ever be a true replacement for the look, the mask, um, the the natural flicker that occurs that your brain definitely processes, even if you don't realize it's happening. Um, and, you know, extra peripherals that are designed for the way a CRT works. I don't think there will ever be a display that mimics it 
perfectly. But I do think as far as just a, I want to play a game and not have my experience destroyed by a laggy, flickery mess. Yeah, I think we're already there. And I think it's just going to hopefully keep getting better. Jake Hughes has an Xtron Crosspoint switch that they're using to switch between multiple RGBS outputting consoles, and they want to go from that to a SCART to component converter, and want to know if they require a 470 ohm resistor for sync for those converters. And I would say absolutely always yes. And the reason I'm so confident in that answer, talking about general products that I may or may not know anything about, is because if you drop the sync too low, the only thing that happens is the device won't sync. So it'll either not work at all, or you'll get like a flickery mess on screen. But if you just, you know, plug it in, try it out, you see it, so then you unplug it, there is no chance of any kind of safety issue. And if anything bad happens in that five second period, something else was wrong. It has, it's This is not, you know, this might be the straw that broke the camel's back, but this isn't something that will harm your monitor that's already in good condition or your, or your devices or your displays or whatever else. So I would always add that just in case if you're not sure. And in the case of the RGB to comp, it's definitely a good idea to add that. And as far as the shiny bow RGB to component video converter, it looks like you updated your question and the shiny bow rep confirmed. Yes, it is expecting 75 ohm sync, just like the SCART standard says. So my guess is correct in that, yeah, add the 470 ohm resistor for something like that. Now, you said you're pretty sure the HD15 to SCART will take care of this. Yes, and that's another, that's one of the reasons why I love this thing so much. It's because you see it and you kind of go, oh, I guess I might be able to use that, maybe. But then you see the context of it. And now, instead of worrying about a whole bunch of custom cables, you could buy yourself a very cheap um, 4 BNC to VGA cable, or if you can't find those, just get a 5 BNC to VGA cable and leave the fifth one hanging or put some tape over it or something. And then just plug that into the HD15 discard and plug that into these boxes. And there is no issue with sync voltage at all. You don't have to mod anything. You don't have to buy a custom cable. You just plug everything in and it all should work. And depending on your setup, it might be much easier to get different lengths of stuff. So you could get those BNC to VGA cables in a one foot form or a 15 foot form. So that might be a help. Also remember the longer the cable and analog, the more signal degradation, but how much where it actually makes a difference to your eyes, it, you know, it could be a lot more than you'd think. So yeah, great question. And, uh, you know, it sounds like you found out all the answers for yourself, but I wanted to re or you know discuss it and reiterate it here just for anybody else who might have the same issue and might want to know the answer. Hugo Castro is looking to take a Dreamcast and GameCube and record footage from that onto a VCR for a vintage 90s look, but also game on a VGA CRT monitor. And that brings up a pretty interesting situation, because if you were doing one of those at a time, that would be a very easy answer. But if you're trying to do both at the same time, that would bring up a bunch of different questions. So first and foremost, Dreamcast and GameCube are both consoles that output almost all of their libraries in native 480p. Dreamcast, most of it just works. Sometimes you need to do the switch trick. GameCube, you might need to use Swiss for some games, but pretty much with very minimal effort, you can get them all, almost all outputting 480p. And if you were just wanting to game on a VGA CRT monitor, for Dreamcast, you just get a VGA cable. And for GameCube, um, I would actually suggest getting the cheapest HDMI adapter you could find. The Prism's a good one that I think is still in stock. And then getting a very cheap DAC, HDMI to VGA converter, and that's it. And in fact, both of those methods, you should be have a fairly easy time, at least, recording that footage. Uh, you'd want to get a VGA splitter for the Dreamcast, um, or you could try getting an HDMI cable for the Dreamcast, one of the cheap ones that just plugs in the back. They're not the greatest quality, but it'll accomplish that, so you have HDMI on both. Put those through an HDMI splitter, send one to your capture card, and then send the other to a digital-to-analog converter, so that way you could capture 480p and game 480p at the same time, and that would work. And if you wanted to take footage from there and then output it to a VHS player, you could probably just use one of those HDMI to comp uh, composite video converters. And yes, they're laggy and they kind of mess with the image and they take 480p and make it 480i, but that might be the look that you're going for and you'd be able to enjoy the games in progressive scan. Now, 
if you were just recording footage through a VCR and then playing on like a consumer grade CRT, you could just get composite video cables for both of those consoles. But to do them both at the same time, I think you would want to do something like take the signal going out, take like the composite video signal going out of those, put it into the VHS player, then take the composite out of that VCR and put it into a RetroTINK Mini, any RetroTINK product at all. And then the HDMI out of the RetroTINK, you would want to convert to VGA to play that on a VGA monitor. But what you're ending up doing there is basically taking a 480i image and playing it in you know, a composite video 480i image and having Bob the interlacing be displayed on your VGA monitor. So it's not going to be at all the best look that you can get out of either of those consoles. And if that's what you're going for, that's totally fine. It's just if it's one of these things where you want to use that monitor to display your games and you just want to record the footage, that's totally cool. The only question I would want to ask at all going through this is why those two consoles? Because those all had the native library that was high definition or EDTV, whatever you want to call it, 480p progressive scan. So if you had said the same thing for like, you know, Genesis, Super Nintendo, PlayStation 1, N64, that would make perfect sense because that's how you would have seen and recorded those. But that's Dreamcast and GameCube are kind of overlapping consoles with a different era. So you would just need to understand that the VCR is going to record it in 480i. And depending on the game, which with those consoles, it wouldn't be an issue, but um, you might get some 240p to 480i issues happening for certain games on those. But either way, those I think are the best answers for you. You mentioned GBS control or OSSC, but that would require more adapters and more money worth of stuff. So I would kind of just, um, I would kind of just take a step back and really under try to understand what your end goals are and what's the more important thing. And it might just be beneficial for you to pick up a cheap consumer grade CRT with a composite video input and do it that way. Run it, you know, the composite inputs into a VCR, the composite output into the CRT and just game and play it that way. It might just be much cheaper overall because if you could find a CRT cheap or free even, as long as you have the comp uh, composite video cables for those consoles, that's all you would need. So let me know if um, you have any other thoughts or if I could clarify anything, but it seems like a cool project. You just would want to have a, a solid grasp on the signals you're using and what the end goal would be for that. Another question from LewisF96. They want some more information on the RetroBrit Super Retro Trio Plus. Uh, I actually just received mine in the mail, and I will be doing a review of this in the context of what these clone consoles with HDMI outputs could be used for. Um, what to, you know? What are the negatives and what are the positives, if any? And I certainly have some strong opinions on this that I hopefully will articulate well in the video. Sometimes I do a better job than others, but. The exact question Lewis has is they have some original consoles, but mostly play on the Mr. However, when they buy a cartridge, they want something to quickly see if a game works or not. And for that use, I think that's awesome. And in fact, I would even consider buying the one without HDMI for much cheaper. And then just, you know, however you could get composite video out to test it, I think that would work. If you have, if you already own a retro tank, if you already own anything with a composite video input that accepts 240p, um, I, yeah, I think that's a great use for these consoles, especially if you could find one used. Um, some of them have kind of the death grip on the cartridges, so I would just be very careful inserting them and pulling them out. Um, and of course, as always, make sure that you clean your cartridges before inserting them. Uh, use isopropyl. Like whenever I buy a new cartridge, uh, unless it's from like Brooklyn Video Games or a store that uh, that I've known, you know, them, Forgotten Fresh, Freshness, Retro Games Plus, like unless it's from a store that you know and you know how they clean their games, I would always, the first thing I would do is go home, open the cart, as long as it's one of those cartridges you could open without ruining the label, but I would open the cart, I would make sure to clean if it needs it at all, just like dust or something, then I take isopropyl and wipe down the contacts, then a pink eraser, basically like erase the contacts, and then isopropyl one more time, just in case your fingers touched it, you want to get the oils from your fingers off of that, uh, any residue left over, like just 
kind of little bit of rubber left over from the eraser and clean that off and then put it back together without touching the pins and go from there. Um, if the pins have rust on them, that's where you would want to be very careful because you could say, oh, I bought a junk, you know, a trio that barely works and only has composite video out. So I don't really care. I could just stick that in there. That is actually a bad thing because little microscopic bits of rust will transfer onto the cartridge pins and could potentially transfer back onto other carts that you plug in there. Now, I'm being a little paranoid saying that, but I just know that so many people have rare and expensive games. And if you have a game collection where all your games are worth a dollar, maybe you're not going to care that much. I still would, to be honest with you. But if you have a bunch of very rare cartridges, you're not going to want to chance that. So that's when you would want to go with into more extreme methods of getting the bits of rust out. But that's a conversation for another time. And that's way more advanced than the stuff that we're talking about at the moment. But in the context of of what you want to do, yes. Make sure everything is clean when you plug it in, just so that you don't transfer anything to another cart. And for that reason, you might even want to buy a new one, just so you know that no one else has used that trio before, and no one's put a really rusty, dirty cartridge in there. But for just testing out to see if games work, yeah. The only thing you would want to keep in mind is not all of them process sound correctly. But you could just test that with anything. You know, if you have the 240p test suite on a car, or if you just have a game that you know for a fact always sounds the same way when you play it, plug it into that. And then if it sounds off, at least you know in the future, when you plug another game in, you're not going to go, oh no, the sound chip's broken on the game. You'll know that it's the, the trio, not the cartridge. So yeah, that's an excellent use for it. And if I remember, I'll, I'll try to bring that up in the review as well as a, a way of just testing stuff uh, I, I think they're excellent devices, but depending on the clone console, you know, I guess I should really change my wording for a clone console because it is a clone, but it's not a like a dirty, you know, it's not a negative connotation of clone. It's just a clone of the original that's legally made and, and totally fine to buy, but it is still a clone console and most of them are pretty terrible. <laughs> so I'll go into detail in the review. I'm going to be fair because there are still uses for them, but overall, um, you know, I would seriously consider only using it for stuff like this, but I'll have the review out hopefully within a few weeks. A couple of questions from Jason Guffey. First is about the HDMI 1.4 specification. And while I'm not an expert at HDMI specs, I think I have enough knowledge to answer this properly. But as always, please correct me if anybody finds out that I'm wrong about this. But basically, Jason wants to know why HDMI 1.4 devices cap out at 4K30, and then HDMI 2.0 devices cap out at 4K60. And I'm pretty sure the answer to that is just because that's what's programmed into the spec and into that chipset and nothing else. Um, I've definitely had TVs that only accepted up to 4K60. Uh, that specific model C-Key that's compatible with the uh, Zsworks kit by itself is definitely only 4K30 compatible. And I just got rid of a monitor from Samsung that accepted 4K60 over DisplayPort, but would cap out at 4K30 over HDMI because of the spec. So obviously there's nothing about that display that's stopping it from doing 4K60. It's just the HDMI spec. So I think that's pretty much it. I think it's basically encryption and security and you know trying to follow all the rules to, to match up to a spec so that all devices are compatible. I don't think you'd ever run into a Blu-ray player that, that would only output 4K30 out of a hardware limitation, I think peripherals like that, it's the same thing. It's whatever HDMI chipset is in there. So I think it's just a limitation of the chipset and, and basically just another stranglehold on uh, you know our HDMI devices. Because while, while the specs have done a lot of good for compatibility, all the security that's built in there is annoying, useless, and stops us from watching content on slightly older devices. And the encryption's always killed within like a day of it being released. So it is just a useless fight that shouldn't even be there. Sorry, a little passionate opinion on that. Um, next, they're looking to digitize some old family videos on VHS tapes, and they're wondering how they should go about doing this. Um, the answer to this is always going to be, how high a quality image do you want? So a very common scenario is a friend of mine will say a family member of theirs has passed. They had a couple of VHS tapes of them and they want to digitize it to put it on YouTube for everybody to remember. Now, 
if you decided that this is super important and you want the highest quality possible, even if there's so little of a difference no one will notice, but you just want the highest quality, you'd want to get a full Doomsday Duplicator setup where you have a modded VHS player with an FPGA board in it that rips the entire tape to a file that's probably eight terabytes in size, and then you use another piece of software to deinterlace that to make it a 480i file, and then you go from there. But that's pretty extreme, and I honestly don't think you would tell the difference if you were using something like a cheap VHS handheld camcorder from the 80s or 90s. I don't know if you'd ever be able to tell the difference. But there are two more scenarios, three, probably three more scenarios in which you might want to seriously consider. Um, and you would just have to decide how far you want to go with the quality part of it. So first, you mentioned that you had a VCR-DVD combo player that could output progressive 480p over component. So that means it's probably just a very cheap and basic deinterlacer built in. Uh, and it's meant for TV signals, as it should be. So you're not going to get the flicker of Bob deinterlacing, but it's also not going to be the world's best deinterlacer. But you could record it in its native 480, well, not in the player's native 480p output, which means it's a much smaller file on your computer. And then you could save those, archive it, and not really worry about it, and then use very basic software to upscale it. I think free software is available to do that kind of upscaling, and you could make it 1080p, 4K, whatever you want. And it's a stretched image. It's not going to look nearly as good as a native 4K or 1080p image. However, you're not relying on anybody else's player to then scale it. So like if you upload a 480p image to YouTube, it's going to get compressed as a 480p image, and then your TV is going to have to stretch that to the higher resolution. Whereas if you take the time to pre-render that to a higher resolution, YouTube still compresses it, but your TV only has to stretch from 1080p to 4K or plays it in 4K. So that's kind of an easier way to do that. And I would, I would recommend doing that, or even if your capture card supports it, capturing original 480i, not 480p, and then using software to deinterlace and then upscale it. There's lots of new software out there that could do a pretty amazing job. So that's the best ways to do it if you have like two or three things that you want to do. You know, maybe one tape total or a couple of scenes that you're going to cut up and you don't really have to do too much work to it. Uh, I, I might even seriously consider, depending how important this is to you, doing a 480i capture and then doing all of the deinterlacing and scaling and software. But what if you're in a scenario which you have like 10 tapes that are all an hour long and they're all filled and you don't want to have to go through all of this trouble and you don't want to have to deal with all of this, um, then yes, your, your question about running 480p from the uh, DVD combo player into the RetroTank 5X setting it to 1080p fill, or even 1080p over if, if your tape has a whole bunch of overscan in it. Um, but just doing that, recording it in 1080p, saving the files and archiving them, that's a perfectly good solution. It might not be as good quality as the others. If the source tapes are already degraded a lot, you might not ever notice a difference, and it's the least amount of work possible. You'll have a little bit more space taken up on your hard drives, but if you have big hard drives, that doesn't matter at all. Um, it might not be as good quality as doing all the work yourself, but it's a perfectly good option. Um, and you're just, you have everything set up right. The deinterlacer of the combo player isn't going to be the best, but it's meant for TV signals. And then you're taking the RetroTINK 5X scaling. Uh, I might even add a smoothing filter to that, um, or at, at least play around with it, because you probably won't want to sh have that be sharp scaled. But now there's a bunch of different options on the RT5X that you could use for that. So that's definitely a great way to do it. And it really just comes down to how many of these videos do you want to do? How important is the quality to you? Or is it really just a matter of getting this out to share with people? And that's the most important part. So I would choose between ease of workflow or how important the quality is and kind of go from there. Um, Lastly, uh, do I ever think certain companies with certain legal ninjas at their disposal might ever come after me for openly admitting to be a dirty pirate? Or do you think they have bigger fish to fry? Um, if they ever felt I was a threat to their bottom line, I'm sure they would. Uh, 
you know, if the world were fair, they wouldn't be able to do anything about it because you can't get in trouble for just talking about this stuff. And, and I'm not selling anything. So it would be very hard for them to win, but they could take me to court and I'd have to pay a lawyer. And I, you know, if I didn't pay a lawyer and represented myself, I could do something stupid and lose. So it's, it's one of those things where they, they could make my life miserable, but I don't think that would ever happen to me because the majority of what I do even standing here calling myself a dirty pirate, saying that I've stolen all the ROMs in the world, I promote more of their sales than I ever would take away from it. And once again, I don't sell other people's intellectual property. So it would be very hard to prove anything in court that I'm doing wrong because it's not like I'm saying, hey, here's 500 ROMs that I downloaded. I'll sell them to you for 10 bucks, which is a really shitty thing to do, by the way. But people out there do do that. I would never. But I don't do any of that. So I think... It's the opposite. I think most of these companies are like, well, I really wish, you know, people wouldn't promote piracy. But ever since that N64 video popped up, I, you know, I got a hundred more subscribers on the Switch online. So, hey, you know, even if he's telling people one thing, it's promoting the other. So I think I'm pretty safe. I could be wrong. I could be served with a legal notice tomorrow, but I'm not the slightest bit worried because I never take money out of people's pockets. And even with all of this ROM cart talk, I, there's been so much of the retro gaming world booming with collector's items that retro game stores are still getting more business. Uh, rare items are still going up in price. So I just, I really think for older stuff, for things that aren't currently being sold uh, on mainstream digital stores, I think trading around ROMs does nothing but promote sales of other stuff. Uh, you know, there's always going to be people that download the ROM packs, sell off their connect collections and say, I don't really care, but that really is the minority. Usually people who download these discover more things they like and, and are able to, to cultivate, I don't know, that's probably the wrong word, but to curate a collection based on their tastes. So rather than saying, oh, this is a rare game, I wonder if it's good, let me save up my money and spend 500 bucks on it, they get to play it and all of the other really rare games and go, you know, I'd I don't really care about that one game I thought I did, but these two are awesome and I want the original and I want the artwork and I want the... So, yeah, it was a really long way of saying, no, I'm not the slightest bit worried because I think I promote way more sales than I do thievery. And I think myself and everybody I know that are dirty pirates do it in the same way that I do and that, you know, it, it's it's more for having an archive of stuff to pull from and or testing and try before you buy or ease of use or all those things I always talk about. And it's much less of, hey, you could do this instead of that. But I guess we'll see. Richard Dr. Cespedes wants to know if I could give them a simple and affordable solution to connecting a PC to a CRT via SCART so they could play MAME or RetroArch on it. Is there a good converter? They have DVI and HDMI out options for their PC graphics card, and their CRT is a consumer Toshiba with RGB in. So for that, you're going to need a few different things. So you could buy a brand new video card, um, an arcade VGA. Um, I think they're getting kind of hard to find, but you could just buy one of those and then you could get yourself something like uh, a VGA cable and an HD15 to SCART to turn it into RGB SCART um, or specifically RGBS via SCART at the correct voltages. And that would work. You could do something like trying to force your current video card to output 1920 by 240. So they, they've nicknamed that super resolution 240p and that might work. Another thing that you could do is you could take something like the GBS control or RetroTINK 5X, and then you could set your PC to 640 by 480, which is still should be doable. You're going to have to go into your advanced settings, but it should be much, much easier to do than 240p. In fact, I can't remember a video card or laptop that can't do 640 by 480. Please somebody correct me if that doesn't exist. So I think a good way to do this would be set your PC to 640 by 480 and then downscale it. So you would then need to transfer um, DVI or HDMI to component video, which is pretty easy. That's a cheap DAC. So you can go component video in on either one of those, GBS control or RetroTINK 5X. And then you would need to convert the output. 
So on GBS control, it's a VGA output. So just simply an HD15 to SCART would be all that you need. Um, VGA cable into that, and that would work. For the RetroTINK 5X, it's HDMI. So you'd need HDMI to VGA and then an HD15 to SCART. So overall, it sounds like you're going to need some kind of sync combining solution no matter what. So I would pick up an HD15 to SCART when they go back on sale, which part shortages, supply chain, there's delays with that, but they're still going to be available to purchase. Um, And then I would just decide what you want to do with it. For me personally, if it's a dedicated machine that is only going to be hooked up to a CRT and you're never going to use it for anything else, I really like the arcade VGA cards or some of the other ones that you could flash the BIOS, add custom software, whatever. But I would, if it's a dedicated PC, I would have a dedicated video card so that you basically just need a converter and a sync combiner. And obviously I keep talking HD 15 to SCART just because it's so easy. Um, any of them would work though. An Extron sync combiner, uh, a handmade one, whatever you want to do, as long as it follows the circuit, you're not just connecting a Y cable or something like that. But if it's a multi-use machine, I would look into downscaling just because all you have to do to turn it back to a regular PC is just change the resolution. So it should be fairly easy. And I think you should be able to do something like have your main monitor hooked up and then have your second output go through the downscaler to the CRT. So you, you don't even really need to change the way your PC boots, you could just, you know, drag MAME over to the other one, open it full screen. I've had issues with that in the past, but you should be able to pull it off. So yeah, simple and affordable is not going to happen, but um, simple enough and not too crazy expensive is what you'd really need to decide on. So if you want more info, let me know, but that's always a tricky one. Earth to Brux just installed an sRGB and everything works great except they get diagonal lines of dark interference across the image, most notably when the screen is scrolling. They used an SNES type multi-out they got from Retrofixes to wire everything up and they admittedly used the cheapest S-video cable they could find on Amazon. Sorry if you're tired of answering this kind of thing, but the cable is the cable most likely the culprit or could it be something internal that they should check out? For the record, it's the same the the same S video cable produces a fine image with their Super Nintendo, N64, and GameCube. So well done, already doing some troubleshooting steps. That was going to be my first thing. Would can you try that cable on other consoles? And if you plug that into your SNES, and especially if you play something like one of the first levels of Super Mario World where there's a very blue background and you don't see any interference, it's probably not the cable. What that sounds like is it could be the power, uh, the DC to DC voltage regulator or your power brick. So I would make sure that you're using uh, 7805 or the new 7805S DC to DC voltage regulators if your kit told you to uninstall it and install one that doesn't have a heatsink, that's probably the issue because those things are do exactly what you're seeing. The other thing I would check is what about your external power supply? And if there's any question, I would grab a triad power supply, which is the ones I always talk about. Links are on firebrandx.com. I'm not sure where you're located, so you might need to pick up a uh, international one. Castlemania sells the US ones. I should probably just throw links to that. Just make sure it matches whatever your console is. So I guess external power supply, if you're using one of those cheap three-in-one PSUs, just throw that thing in the garbage respectfully. Sorry, I know a lot of people get upset when I say that, but I wouldn't risk my old consoles with those. Um, So make sure you have a good external power supply and check the voltage regulator on the inside. Make sure it's still the one that requires the heatsink, and you might want to just swap that out. Um, they don't usually go bad, but in a console this old, it's it's time. I mean, it's time. You're going to need to do it at some point. Might as well use that as a troubleshooting step. And if you have a new voltage regulator, it's the one that requires the heatsink, you have the Triad PSU, and it's still doing this, that's when you need to go down a much deeper um, diagnostics, diagnostics of it, because I've seen some revisions of Famicoms that just have jail bars, no matter what you do, whether it's stock, whether it's NES RGB, you know, you change parts around, change RAM, you know, it's, it's just some board revisions stink. So I would start with power and then kind of go from there. And I would hope that it's power because those are infinitely easier solutions than the rest. Uh, but good luck. And let me know if you have any other questions. 
The Retro Channel wanted to chime in about a question from Marco last week regarding how to read CRT hours on consumer-grade CRTs. So with regards to the power-on hours, most are expressed as a hex value. So in their case, when you open up the service menu and you see 046B, that would translate to 1,131 use hours, which means it is a very new CRT. A thousand hours is not even broken in yet. The limit would be FFF, so 65,535 hours. After that, they probably clock over. So it's either really low or incredibly high, or maybe somebody has found a way to wind back the clock on the odometer. <laughs> um, so I guess look at the CRT. If you power it on and it's dim and there's burn in and it's kind of yellowed, then it's most likely got over 65,000 hours. Or if you turn it on and it looks crisp and new and nice and bright, then you probably do only have an 1100 hour CRT and you should be very happy with that one. The retro channel also said they asked about adjusting the flyback screen controls. Personally speaking, they just leave it alone unless you're sure there's an issue with the screen voltage being too low or too high. Yes, having it set too high will shorten the life of the CRT, and setting it too low may do the same thing as you'll likely need to increase brightness and or contrast to compensate. They'd be wrong on that, but, you know, still kind of something that I completely agree with. Just set the flyback the way it's supposed to be. And just use it the way that you would want to use it. So if you're in a bright room in daylight and you got to turn the brightness up, don't feel guilty. This is you're using the tool in the manner in which it was meant to be used. Um, but, you know, at the same time, if you're not using it, don't leave it running 24 seven with the brightness turned all the way up, you know, only power it on when you're using it. All those things that I try to do myself, which may or may not matter, but at least I feel like I'm adding to the longevity of my stuff. So um, thanks very much for jumping in the retro channel. I really appreciate it. I hope the hex thing translates to all service menus and CRT hours, because that would be very, very cool if uh, if that's as easy as it would be to figure out how many hours are on stuff. And now I'm looking at my consumer-grade CRTs here, which I have one, two, three, four, five. It's probably more hidden in my garage somewhere, but I want to go see if I could find the service menus on those and, and see if I could do that. So uh, probably won't have time to do that before the end of this Q&A, but I'd love to follow up with this myself and just see if they all from different brands follow that same hex listing for the hours used. Jason Garrett was hoping I could provide some clarification on Mr.'s direct video connection options. They have a consumer Sony XBR250 with component video inputs, and on the uh, blog post that I wrote up about direct video in Mr., I say that currently HDMI to component video converters are not supported, but then I have a couple of them listed in the Amazon products list, which I say should work. So um, I think you need to separate two things. I mean this respectfully. So first of all, my write-up on Mr.'s direct video was obviously reflective of what was available then, which is why it was a blog post and not a permanent page on the site, because the Mr. Project is always evolving. But also, I have a list of cheap DACs in my Amazon store that would work generally for retro gaming. And in that list are HDMI to VGA converters, as well as HDMI to component. So those two things don't link to each other in any way other than this group in the Amazon page might be stuff you want to look at for this post, but they're not directly linked. Just because they're there doesn't mean that they would work with it. So I don't know if I worded that wrong or if I put the wrong link to something, but generally speaking, those are just two completely separate things. And I probably linked to that in the context of the HDMI to VGA converters that were in there. Now, it's been over six months since I've looked into this. Maybe they fixed it. Maybe they've changed something. Um, there's a few other things that you could try. But if you're using a Sony XBR, there is one thing I want to bring up. Um, if it's the XBRs that process 480p, that means it might not process 240p correctly. It might try to deinterlace 240p. So... If that's the case, I've, I don't remember using an XBR250, but if that's a 480p model, and if it processes 240p wrong, you might just want to set the mister to 480p, uh, add scan lines, just basic horizontal scan lines, and not use direct video mode, just standard 480p, and then the HDMI to component video converter would work. 
Uh, you don't need the scan lines, but then when you add them, it provides a very close look to standard RGB, which is kind of what I went through in the Connect Classic Consoles to VGA Monitors video. So this might all be a moot point because if your XBR250 processes 480p properly and doesn't process 240p properly, then you wouldn't want to use direct video anyway. Set it to 480p, add scan lines, use the DAC, and you're done. If you if it does process 240p correctly, you might just want to look into picking up an I.O. board because you could probably modify one of the converters to get component. Um, you know, Mr. might be having some changes that they might be able to come up with. But generally speaking, just buying an I.O. board and a cheap VGA to component video cable should be good enough. And overall, it might even be the cheaper and easier solution both at the same time. So hopefully that provides some clarification. If anybody who's familiar with the, the Mr. Direct Video stuff knows of any changes or updates in the past six plus months, please let me know. I'd certainly be willing to update that post, but I think I think that's still basically the same and you would just have to choose what's better for your setup. So either if it's 480p model, just you know, do what I said before about setting it to 480p. And if not, you might just want to look into an IO board, if nothing else, just for a component video. Before I go, I just wanted to mention that website, ko-fi.com, or, you know, like the buy me a coffee one, has just added a whole bunch of new options, a news feed, monthly subscriptions, and all that stuff. So I figured I would just start posting the weekly supporter Q&As there too, if that's your preferred support method. Um, you know, it's my... It's my opinion that I honestly don't care which of these I use. I want to use whichever one that you want to use. So uh, as far as I go, I don't, you know, I, I don't really care if this is just easier for anybody. Uh, feel free to jump over over here, but I'll be checking them every week. I'll be posting them there every week. And unless the website starts driving me crazy and doing a bunch of stuff, uh, you know, uh, annoying processing issues like some of the other services I've used, I'm just going to stick with it because I think it's a pretty cool service. Uh, and a lot of other people seem to use it as well. So I'll leave a link to the description. Um, but, you know, I just always want to make sure I'm very clear of how unbelievably appreciative I am of anybody who supports in any way. And I don't care where it comes from. I mean that with love and respect. I mean that in a good way. So, you know, I'm not saying use this instead of another. I'm not asking, I'm certainly not asking for you to support in multiple places. Uh, I'm just saying here's another option available if you want to do it. And um, I, I don't really have any experience with it. So we'll see how it goes. Hopefully it doesn't stink. Well, that's it for this week. If you're new to these Q&As, please post whatever question you have, wherever it is that you support, in the latest Q&A post. The way these services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an old post. And on top of that, I really do like just kind of scrolling down in real time and answering the questions as they pop up. So any question at all you have, fire it off wherever the latest Q&A post is, wherever it is that you support. And if for whatever reason I miss it, please either DM me or just ask it in the next week's uh, a Q&A post. Sometimes the questions come in after I'm done recording and I didn't even see them come in. So it's always an honest mistake. I don't delete questions, except that one time I accidentally deleted Lewis's, but that's different because I messaged him and told him I did. <laughs> Sorry. But anyway, as always, thanks so much to everybody who supports in any way possible. I really appreciate that you're keeping all of this stuff going and I really can't wait to see what we can do next. So thank you very much and I'll see you next week.